Did you know that Nine Mark's books have been translated into a variety of languages? To find out what Nine Mark's translations are available, visit www.ninemarks.org forward slash Nine Marks Translations. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. It's January 31st, 2012, and we are in Washington, D.C. to talk about elders and deacons in the local church. And we are especially interested in understanding this from the perspective of the responsibility and guidance of a senior pastor. How should those of us in the ministry help in finding such elders and deacons? What is our role in raising them up? And to help us to do that, we have with us Matt Schmucker of Nine Marks and T4G, who has himself been an elder here at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington and is currently the chairman of our elders and has talked to many of you about having elders in your churches. And we have as our extra special guest with us this time, Tabidi Anyabuile. Tabidi, good to see you, brother. Good to see you, brother. Glad to be with you. Tabidi currently serves as senior pastor of First Baptist Church Grand Cayman, uh, where you have elders, a plurality of elders, right? We do. Uh, he's been an elder here with us at the Capitol Hill Baptist Church. In fact, he was the chairman of our elders. He was an elder at Church on the Rock in Raleigh, he's author of a number of books, The Faithful Pastor, The Gospel for Muslims, The Decline of African American Theology, What is a Healthy Church Member, and most recently, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons. Thabiti holds a BA and MS degree in psychology from NC State. He's a former high school basketball coach and bookstore owner, and he's a contributing writer here at Nine Marks. He and his wife, Christy, have three children, Eden, Afia, and a son, Titus. And uh, and I should mention also that you are a prolific blogger. Is that right? You are. That makes it sound like a disease. Don't you think you are? <laughs> well, I'd like to talk. Well, so. you are. <laughs> um, tell us just for a second about that bookstore you owned. Yeah, it was called New African Images. Um, it was a bookstore that specialized in titles by, for, and about Africans and African Americans. We were undergraduate students when we opened it. Took our financial aid money and some other little money that we had scraped together and um, opened we, the bookstore. My wife and I, and uh, we had another student who was a, a business partner with us. Yeah. And you were Baptists when you opened the store? No, I was a Muslim when we opened the store. And the store lasted for how long? Uh, we probably was in business about a year, year and a half. And you were Muslim when you closed the store? Mm-hmm. And did you deal with religious topics in the literature, in, in sale in the store? Yeah, we would have had some things, um, particularly from a kind of Afrocentric perspective, uh, in titles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then it was how long after your bookstore owning that you became a Christian? Uh, two, maybe three years. Right. So we closed up the bookstore... Um, probably after our junior year in college and uh, looking, so deciding we better go ahead and graduate. And uh, it would have been another year or so after graduating that the Lord called me to himself. So your love of books is one of the things the Lord sort of made you with and, and left in you after you were converted. I mean, that's a consistency of the BD before conversion and since conversion. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I think I've always liked books, um, but growing up, we couldn't afford them. Um, so I didn't 
have like a, a growing library as a kid, but I, I like to read. Um, but it would really be college when, when I would just sort of love books and fall in love with books. Um, and when did you first think of writing books? In college, okay. undergraduate. So I remember the first book I outlined uh, and wanted to write, and I showed my little outline to uh, then one of my mentors in the psychology department. And he gave it back to me, hardly looking at it. He says, you don't know enough yet to write a book. And he was absolutely right. And uh, so what it is, but I've been wanting to write since since then. Now, do you have – so do you enjoy writing books now? I do. And do you have a lot more books that you want to write? I mean, the one, the one that's provoked this conversation today is this newest book by Crossway that you've done, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons. Mm. But are there more kind of in the pipeline? Uh, pipeline is too strong a word, but there are ideas that I've been noodling on for a couple of years that I'd like to give some attention to if the Lord Lord gives me life and energy. And before we dive into this book, which we're about to do, mm-hmm. like what might those be? Uh, I'd love to write a book that is um, sort of a look at the notion of race and, and ethnicity and uh, trying to think about that in helpful ways from a from a biblical perspective, questioning the very construct of race itself and trying to argue for healthier ways of, of identifying ourselves. And uh, You think the construct is, is, is a construct and it's polarizing? It, it is a social construct. It is polarizing. It is freighted with now hundreds of years uh, of abuse. It it is in its origin, at least, um, genetically related to arguments about um, superiority of certain peoples over others. Um, and the reason we can't talk about it productively is is because of all of that that freighted negative baggage, and because it's not actually real. It's not a helpful construct. So it's abandoned in the genetic sciences. It's abandoned in anthropology. It's abandoned increasingly in social sciences. Um, the church was almost the last to adopt it, and we're sort of the last to abandon it. And ethnicity is just a more fluid category? It more is. More nuanced? It is. I think even as you read um, the Old Testament narrative itself, you see the emergence and a decline of ethnic groups. Um, Genesis 10, Acts 17, 26 uh, it's telling us that there, there's really one, in, in a physical sense, there's only one race, quote-unquote, of people all descended from Adam. In the spiritual sense, you then get the race of, you get the race of Christ. Uh, but beyond that, what you have are families and ethnic groups and clans and language groups, uh, which are far more porous um, and aren't associated the way race is with particular attributions of inferiority or superiority and you know, a whole list of things. And uh, this is interesting, and I'm being pulled into this, but I can't do that because that's not what this uh, conversation is about. But if so, somebody wanted to know more about that, the address you gave it Together for the Gospel in 2008 mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. was on this. Is there anything you would tell people to read? Uh, Daniel Hayes' book, um, From Every Tribe and Nation, I think, is part of IVP's biblical um, series on biblical theology. Uh, I find that particularly helpful. Colin Kidd's book, the Forging of Races, which came out uh, last year. It's either Yale or Oxford. Uh, it's an excellent title looking at uh, the development of race as a construct from the 1600s up until about uh, 2000. Um, those would be two places, I think, to start. Now, this book that we're talking about now, you wrote on elders. Why did you write a book on elders? Uh, largely because that's what I am, and I love being an elder. And um, increasingly, I'm convinced that um, the teaching and training of faithful men who themselves would teach and shepherd God's people is just at the heart of pastoral ministry. So if a pastor isn't doing that, um, I think he's significantly off the mark in terms of whatever he's doing and and investing his energy. And it's interesting, it's not just finding faithful elders, it's finding faithful elders and deacons. Why the inclusion of deacons in the title? 
Um, Jonathan Lehman uh, insisted on it, uh, so all the jig is well in it. Uh, but it is it is the two enduring offices in the New Testament church: uh, elders and deacons. Uh, they have distinct but complementary roles. Um, and I would also say, particularly going back to the days of, of church planning in North Carolina, um, that deacons are, are, are as vital in, in, in a different way um, as, as elders, um, particularly when it comes to freeing up the elders uh, for the work of teaching and for the work of um, the ministry of the word. Uh, we see that again, if, if, if we take Acts 6 as paradigmatic, uh, we see that there, right there in Acts 6 with the apostles and uh, the seven men that were, were called out to serve the early church. In practical matters. Part one of your book is on deacons. It's about 25 pages. Uh, the rest of it's on elders. Why start with deacons? Um, well, again, because the, the, the work itself, the book itself, was really aiming at the issue of elders um, and wanted to, again, at Jonathan's suggestion, go back and, and think about deacons. I think what we have in, in 1 Timothy 3 and 4, which is what the book primarily meditates on, mm-hmm. uh, is the pastoral office itself. Uh, the New Testament doesn't give us as much data on deacons and, and the role of deacons as, um, as as it does elders. And so just front-loading that so that it's not an afterthought yeah. um, and um, also just giving attention to the very practical, important roles that deacons play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the reader of the book shouldn't think that I'm intentionally trying to give short shrift to deacons um, in that way, but um, I, I don't in any way want to undermine the dignity of that office and the importance of that office. Um, and and I understand, obviously, why faithful, but I know you're a man who's very careful with words. Why finding faithful elders and deacons? Why not just faithful elders and deacons? Why finding? Well, I, I think the pastor needs an active uh, posture at, at finding, at discovering, at training, at raising up and deploying. Uh, elders and deacons. So I, I guess I want to encourage existing elders, pastors, congregations uh, to have a, an, an active posture toward um, toward finding these men and, and encouraging them and um, giving them, you know, birth into ministry. Um, I, I think that's the posture that Paul strikes in Second Timothy too. Uh, he says the things you've heard me teach and say, so on and so forth. Find faithful men and mm-hmm. trust this to them, men who will be able to teach others also. Uh, so, again, that just seems to be at the heart of the minister's activity in the local church. And that's been one of your main things you've done as a pastor. I'm trying, trying. Um, when I arrived in, um, in, in at First Baptist Church in Grand Cayman, uh, the Lord had already uh, wonderfully moved to uh, move that church from um, a different kind of polity structure to adopting deacons and elders. So there were six wonderful men there already serving uh, as elders. And so... Job number one was to try and build team with those guys. They've been elders there for about two years before I arrived, so they had gelled quite nicely. And so my task was to try and gel with them as well. Uh, and now we're increasingly moving out. In fact, when I go back, we'll be having one of our first meetings with uh, about eight or nine guys that are prospective elders and deacons right. that we're trying to train. And so, yeah. Let me just take us to deacons for a couple of minutes here sure. at the beginning, like you do in the book, and then we'll spend probably most of our time on elders. Sure. But if we can just open our Bibles, First Timothy that's where you've been keeping me as I've been looking at your book again. First Timothy three eight. Uh, so many things we could talk about, but let's just go there. If we're thinking about deacons, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, uh, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. Mm. Uh, well, I guess the beginning. What is a deacon? Let's just define the word deacon. Do you take this to be the office we see in Acts six? 
Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Uh, I know there's arguments to yeah. be had there, but I, I do think Act 6 is paradigmatic for the Office of Deacons. Uh, deacons are basically table servants. Yeah, that's what um, you call them in the book, the whole yeah. section. Yeah, they're table servants. So I set the first part up just by using the analogy of, of visiting a restaurant. Um, and part of what makes your restaurant experience quality is how good your how good your waiter or waitress is. They're not too intrusive, but they're attentive. Um, they know what is needed um, to create a good experience. They know what the kitchen does well, and uh, they bring that out to you in a speedy way. And um, and, and in a similar kind of way, um, that's what you want in the church with your deacons. You want people who are attentive to the needs of the congregation, not too intrusive, um, such that they interrupt the natural life of the church but attentive in such a way such that they're kind of proactive and they serve the needs and they keep the needs of the church, as we saw in Acts chapter 6, from becoming disruptive and even divisive uh, in the church. And so deacons fundamentally are are table servants and uh, caring for the practical needs of the body, uh, anticipating those needs in some ways and and using the gifts the Lord has given them um, to to care for and provide. Honestly, Matt, given your experience at Nine Marks, isn't it, Almost ironic, this description that Thabiti is giving of deacons, given what so many churches experience. I mean, like, so Thabiti, you're saying that they're not divisive, but I, I mean. <laughs> it shouldn't be. Right. I mean, I'm just looking here in verse 8. I'm just thinking about, you know, sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think some of the translations will say not double-tongued. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is, isn't this where so many churches, Matt, are in trouble with, with uh, deacons who frankly don't? Deacons as the leaders of the church and not meeting these biblical qualifications. Yeah, I think I think these qualifications are largely absent, and they're looking to the world as for signifiers. They're they're looking to the world. You know, are they good in banking? Are they good in the medical community? Are they good leading the little league? That sort of thing. Are they charismatic? And you know, anything but these sorts of qualifications, and they get what they reap what they sow. I fear. Yeah. I've been, you know, reading and meditating on James, preparing the series I'm about to preach now, Lord willing, through James. And James 3.17 says that wisdom from God is, first of all, pure, mm-hmm. then peace-loving, mm-hmm. considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial. And then there's this word again. It's the same word that Paul uses here, sincere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we work to cultivate this kind of stuff? In our in our deacons or in the men in the church, truthfulness, faithfulness, honesty, transparency, reliability, members of the local church. Well, I, you know, part of what the scripture tells us here is is that they must first be tested, then let them serve. In verse ten, there. Um, so I think part of what it means to find is to look out for those folks who are already doing it. Um, being a former basketball coach, we used to say you can't coach size. Right. So you can't take a big guy who plays small and make him play big. You can't coach that uh, he either plays big or he doesn't. And on some level, I don't push that too far. That's, that's analogous to what you want to do when you're looking for potential deacons and elders. Who are those folks who are already serving? They don't have the title. They're not looking for the title. Um, they're just loving the congregation. And uh, Sister Jones, who's 85 and still likes to try and get out and come to church, they're the ones who drive by and pick her up and uh, escort her up the steps, make sure she gets there safely. Um, you know, Brother Harold, who's having surgery and so on and so forth, they're the ones who sort of arrange meals and to make sure that, you know, Brother Harold doesn't have to cook for those three weeks while he's while he's recovering. Um, so part of what one part of the answer to your question is, is to look for how the Lord is already doing that in the life of people um, so that you don't have to try and, and create it 
um, ex nihilo, you know, in someone's life who sort of doesn't have it. Beyond that, I think it's discipling, right? It's it's coming alongside folks in your congregation, teaching them to follow Christ, to obey the things He's commanded, teaching Him to apply, teaching them to apply the Word to their lives, such that by God's grace, through His Word and the work of the Spirit, those things begin to grow and flower. Okay, so what? Just reflecting on what Matt said a moment ago, characterizing a lot of churches today, what should a pastor do if he gets to the church and finds that this kind of sincerity and straightforwardness? do not characterize the deacons or the other officers in the congregation. So his deacons all went to Wake Forest. They're, they're demon deacons. And uh, <laughs> 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 uh, I, I think the first thing he should do, if he's just gotten to the church, uh, he should just really open the Bible and, and, and preach the scriptures. Um, he should maybe even start with a gospel, start through Mark, and just begin to preach the scripture. I think the other thing he should do, and, and honestly, Mark, I feel like it's a mistake I made in my own ministry, I think you should take the first two to four years to get to know the people. Yeah. yeah. And just commend everything he can commend. Yep. Don't worry about fixing things. Yep. Don't worry about changing things. You're not going to be able to do that if they suspect you don't really love them anyway. And they suspect that you, you, the church is a project to you. Um, so just go ahead and say, you know what? These first four years are years that I'm going to invest in just affirming everything good that I can afford. And that is the opposite advice a lot of people give. A lot of people say, hey, man, you, you got you just got the vote to get in. It's your first year. You get everything done you can in those first, you know, 12 months. Mm-hmm. Matt, thought on that? Well, that is the advice. If you don't change something in the first 12 months, you never will. Yeah, that sounds like business advice. Yeah. Mm. So is yeah. that what you think, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working on you. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think the case can be made for some things that you need to change. You know, if you arrive and obviously you've got um, deacons who are ungodly in in ways that are clear, in ways that are abhorrent to Scripture and the Lord, there may be things that you cannot avoid facing. And in courage and in faith, you ought to go ahead and do that. So my first year at the church, um, we, we had a discipline situation. A man was living in unrepentant adultery very publicly, had been very active in the life of the church. He'd not been a deacon, but he had served in a lot of places in the ministry. Um, there's just no way that, that in good conscience uh, I could stand up and preach the scripture uh, and this man be sitting there and we not address as a that. member in good standing as a member in good standing. So there may be things that you have to address. Um, and we want to take pray counsel from friends in the ministry before you do something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And you know, um, but do what the Lord calls you to do yeah. in those cases. Otherwise do I think love the people, teach the people, be patient. Um, and, um, know the church's constitution. You know, are these deacons for life? Are these guys who are going to be rotating out in a couple of years? You would respond to those, I think, in very different ways. Um, and so familiarize yourself with the church's organizing documents. Um, begin to remind the people about those things. Uh, how, this is how we, you all said you wanted to govern yourself as a church. And so let's, are we doing this? Let's do this. Why are we not doing that? Okay, do we need to start or do we need a better document here or there? Uh, and lead them through that. But you both are senior pastors. You may not be able to make changes in those first couple of years, but don't you feel like your reaction to what's going on is on display? It's huge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, what's yeah, being so. calculated there. Everybody knows that deacon's bad. It's, the question is, what are you going to do in reaction to him? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, fortunately, when I got here, I had some of the older members tell me to ignore certain other older members, <laughs> and it was really useful. I mean, they just said, yeah, he says a lot, but he doesn't do anything. Don't worry about him. Mm. And uh, and others said, hey, watch out for that guy. Mm. So, I mean, that was that was really useful that there were godly older members helping the young pastor mm. figure things out. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to the elders. So, Thabiti, what's an elder? You, you, you spend most of your book on elders. What is an elder? 
Elder is an, an overseer, a shepherd, a pastor, so synonyms that are used in the New Testament. He's someone who's particularly um, qualified, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, gifted by the Lord um, to oversee as an under-shepherd God's people, uh, to lead them by the word, uh, to protect the flock, feed the flock, um, and to do that in, in, in partnership with other elders um, in, in a local congregation. And why is it that you spend most of the book, <clears throat> excuse me, most of the book on the elder? Well, in part because I think, again, that's where the emphasis is in the scripture. Um, and and this is the book. The aim of the book is to take the qualifications in First Timothy three, and to take the instructions of First Timothy four, which Paul writes to the the young pastor, the young elder Timothy. And to basically try and flesh them out in a practical set of questions. Here's how you know what it might look like if a man's hospitable or a man's able to teach and so on. Um, so I spend the bulk of the time there, in part because that's where the scripture spends the bulk of the time. But I think the scripture is indicating to us, um, in spending the bulk of the time there, mm-hmm. that that actually is the pivotal position in the church. Um, if the ministry of the word drives the church, then those ministers of the word uh, are vitally important. Um, and so you want to you want to get the ministers of the word right so that the ministry of the word um, flows appropriately yeah. and, and blossoms. So what do you do or what does a pastor do when they go to a church and find that there aren't any elders? I, I don't mean that they don't have men qualified. I mean that there's no office of elder recognized by the church that, that all they have is deacons because there are so many churches that that is is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, first thing is just ask a lot of questions. Why is that the case? Um, do you have a congregation there that is in some way uh, opposed to elders? Um, imagine a man going to a Baptist church and perhaps the church thinks that elders is a Presbyterian thing. You know, is there some misinformation and opposition there? Or is it that you got a congregation just never thought about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, in either case, though, what you're doing is just sort of discovering why you are where you are, uh, and then you want to begin to teach um, the scripture and to lead the congregation toward the scripture to help them understand what the role is, to, to help them understand that in calling you, they just called an elder. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and what the New Testament says is for their own health and joy, they need more than just you. They need multiple elders or mm-hmm. pastors um, and just begin to teach and to teach and to teach, um, begin to recognize in various ways, informal or otherwise, men at the congregation may already be recognizing as elder like men, you know, give them platform, give them perhaps opportunity to teach in Sunday school or if you have a Sunday night service or someplace of that sort. Um, so that the congregation also gets to be more comfortable receiving instruction and leadership from, again, men whom you may already see to be elder-like, so that as you move toward that, in whatever structural ways you need to move toward having the office in place, um, it's not as weird, it's not as alien. Well, yeah, we always, Joe has always played this kind of role, and we're saying, okay, then what we want to do then is is just sort of bring our practice into closer conformity uh, to what God says in his word. A great resource that I've recommended for years on this is Phil Newton's uh, Elders in Congregational Life. Matt, you want to tell folks about that book just real briefly and tell them also what you're doing with it? Phil takes a historical look. Phil's at, a pastor in Memphis. Yep, takes a historical look at the, uh, the elders, and he takes a biblical look at the elders, and then he takes a practical look at elders, uh, and really introducing um reintroducing elders to Baptist life. We hope to bring that book. It's, it's sold well, but we hope to do some more with that book. Phil's agreed to allow me to chime in on that book and insert some color commentary between chapters about how we saw elders brought into our own life here at Capitol Hill Baptist and how 
the good, the bad, and the ugly of how that's worked out, uh, some of the roadblocks we've run into. So a bit of history of, uh, of one local church's reform. And Lord willing, that'll come out in 2013. Right. Yeah. So, Tavidi, what's the most difficult part of finding faithful elders? Uh, probably patience. Right. So Paul says, lay hands on no man hastily. And uh, I think experience has taught me, at least, that, you know, some men can sometimes appear um, initially, mm-hmm. like they're ready for the eldership and present in a particular way. But you, you scratch around a little bit in their life and you find out, oh, OK, oh, I didn't know that was there. Ooh, I didn't know it was there. Um, and, and what could have been a very urgent leaning toward that guy, let's, mm-hmm. let's raise him up, you, you find out was probably unwise. Um, so that I think is, is, is probably in my own heart, at least, uh, the most difficult thing is just being patient and watching and, and querying and digging and encouraging, uh, and letting the Lord in his own time mold a man and prepare a man for that. I think it's very helpful to ask the congregation to send you information. So probably every week Mm -hmm. somebody will say to me, Hey, have you noticed so-and-so? Have you seen what they were doing in the, in the congregation? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, Hey, would you write that up? Send that to me in an email. And then let me share that with the elders. They almost never do that part. Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) you know, at least that they tell me and, you know, so it's in there and it's just so helpful just to see what the Lord is doing through various folks in the church. So the congregation, I think, is a vital role to play in knowing sort of who is. One of the benefits of that, too, is it, it, it becomes a kind of um, test, if you will, um, for the elders' own thinking about that. So we have the same practice where we invite the congregation, let us know who you're thinking. You have someone that you think we ought to be thinking about. We did that recently, a couple months ago, as we were preparing for training this new class of guys. And um, we, we did have a handful of folks who, who did write to us back. And to see that, by and large, the same people we were thinking about That's praying so about, they were thinking about and praying about. And but that uh, process you're talking about is different than nomination. That's right. At this point, we're just sort of thinking, we're just scanning the congregation, thinking about um, identification, mm-hmm. you know, who looks to us like they're people we ought to get to know better um, with an eye toward discerning whether or not they should be yeah, we, nominated. We think the congregation is extremely helpful in in identifying who the elders should be. Mm-hmm. But on that particular formal nomination, we leave that with the elders just because then you don't have to have all the embarrassing conversations like, well, really, he really has, you know, a particular problem at work right now. And, you know, we, we need to sort that out first. You don't have to do that publicly. publicly though, you leave right. it mm-hmm. with the elders. That's right. Um, Andy Johnson was talking to us right before this interview about the difference, the, the sort of different tendencies pastors have to think either, you know, you recognize an elder, what we're talking about kind of right now, the Lord raises up elders, which Mm -hmm. I I know we think is true, but then how that can lead to almost a passivity where there's nothing we can do. Mm -hmm. Then the other side, just you mentioned training men. Okay, well, let's create a two-year training course, Mm -hmm. and we will just take, I I think in a lot of PCA churches, they're they're supposed to offer Mm -hmm. elder training to all the eligible men in the congregation. and and uh, you know we will we will train men and at the end then we will have we will have elders now I know in the PCA that doesn't come automatically but I'm saying be- between two attitudes a pastor can take I'll be passive and just see who the Lord raises up or I can actually make an elder if I train them mm. uh, wh- where do, where do we find the right balance the right combination about what we do to find elders anything in between there. Well, I think Ephesians 4 is the Lord who gives gifted men to his church That's right. to lead the church. So I, we, we want to pull back shy of anything that says, I can make an elder. Yet we don't want to pull back so far that we, we think nothing I do matters in terms of how the Lord makes an elder and how the Lord prepares a man to be an elder. So uh, when we talk about recognizing or finding from the book's title, again, we, we want to be in an active posture. Our, our fundamental job is to disciple. 
Um, and one of the things that I say to church that, that I learned here is, you know, I, I semi-regularly say to all the men, you should aspire to be qualified to be an elder. Mm. Whether or not you actually become an elder is a different thing. But in terms of the characteristics of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, yeah. you're just getting a description of, of masculine godliness. You, every one of us ought to want to be godly in these ways. Uh, and we ought to be discipling and intentionally encouraging each other in ways that lead in this direction. Um, so whether the training is as informal as the kind of discipling and relationship building that you might be doing, or whether it's more structured, I'm agnostic on that. I think there, there are pros and cons, uh, and it depends upon the resources in your church. Um, but we want to avoid being passive because we're called to disciple, and we want to avoid being proud because it's really the Lord who makes a man, a, a, ultimately gives a man as a gift to the church in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So in your normal course of discipling then, some then you'd spend time with, they seem to be like cul-de-sacs. They, they just kind of, it, you give them information, it just kind of sits with them. But other men are like super highways, no doubt, where they, they kind of do something with it. Are those the elders? Maybe, maybe, maybe they're just impulsive. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and again, and this is well, why they it's show patience. Good, good wisdom, good judgment. That's right. And this is why patience not being hasty uh, is is so critical, and so you keep you keep planting, and even the guy who seems to do nothing with it, you keep watching that guy. You you might reapportion your time where you spend your time, but you keep watching that guy because it could be that the Lord is is steadily sort of pushing that seed into the soil a little bit and getting mm-hmm. some other nutrients around it. And in five years, a guy who looks like he wasn't growing, you find out he was bamboo, you know, and he just shot up, and uh, and and he's a, he's now a, a stalwart in the church, and so. So are you always making that calculation as pastors then? Like, how do you spend your time? This guy seems to be running with it. or I mean, How do you? I think I do it kind of innately, but definitely I'm, yeah. I think I am. Yeah, I, as am I. As am I. I mean, you have, you have you had limited time resources, um, and you have lots of folks to try and care for and encourage. Uh, I try to weight my time toward guys that are doing more or less well and are, are more or less eager to be shaped in this way. Um and, um, you know, from time to time, you, you just have to reapportion. Because, because that then multiplies That's your right. pastoral ministry in the church. That's right. I think, I think some pastors, depends on the personality, some pastors think that they need to spend the most amount of time with the people who are in the most crisis. That's right. mm-hmm. And, That's well, right. certainly the members of the church need to care for those, pastors, those members in crisis. And pastors definitely are sometimes involved in that. No question about that. Yeah. But if we basically have a kind of hospital chaplaincy view of the pastoral ministry, we will hurt the congregations that we're serving. The, the whole church becomes a cul-de-sac at that point. Yeah. I mean, the whole church becomes this, this kind of thing. And I love the way um, uh, Colin uh, in, in Trellis and Divine puts it. People, people learn pretty quickly that if you want time with the pastor, the best way to get that is to get yourself a problem. Yeah. You know, and that, that's not what we're trying to communicate. Uh, we, we, we took about 40 or 50 people from the congregation through the Trellis and Divine trying to help them shift with us on this very point, that as an eldership, actually, we need to be trying to multiply um, the, the sort of leaders and disciples in the congregation and at the front lines of care um, really need to be the, needs to be the congregation itself. There always be things that come to the pastor or the elders um, that are sort of deeper end issues. Just so people know, that's, that's a book by two Australian friends, Carl Marshall and Tony Payne, mm-hmm. The Trellis and the Vine, Matthias Media. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really useful book, really easy to read. Yeah. 
It'd be a great book to read with your elders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you read that with your elders first? Yeah, we read it with the elders first, and the elders said, man, how are we going to transfer this to the congregation? Yeah. Uh, and so we just, on a Sunday morning, said, hey, this is a great book. It's, it's shaping how we think about the ministry. We very much want you guys to come along with us in this. And so we invited folks to stay after our Wednesday night Bible studies once a month. And we had about 40 or 50 folks who took us up on that. And we've just gone chapter through chapter through it. Uh, and it's been wonderful to see the light bulbs happening in the congregation's life, too. And, and to see how the Lord has used that book to give members in the congregation a vision for yeah. discipling others. In it's it's not just the elders that need to understand the ministry of the elders. That's right. Everybody needs to understand the ministry of the elders because that's how you help make them and give them a vision for it and keep them accountable to it. And mm-hmm. What about the, the guy who wants to be an elder and he's just almost hiding some things because he wants to be seen in a positive light? Have you seen this case? It, I have. Um, the thing I've said to persons of that sort is, listen, brother, the, the thing that will disqualify you might not be the thing you're hiding. <laughs> it's the fact that you're hiding, you know. Uh, and so it comes back to that sincere issue when you're talking about the mm-hmm. deacons, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, brother, actually, the best the best route is to simply pull the curtain back and shine a light in on that issue um, and then get some help on that issue, grow through it. Maybe it slows down the track. It's good that you have an ambition for, for the eldership. But the extent to which you now want to hide some things because of that ambition, well, that's dross. That's 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 a sinful um, reaction. So let's let's shine the light on the thing, get some help to it. Because um, you know he's got problems. Don't we all? Yeah. Don't we all? Uh, somebody's going to put you it out there. You need to know what they are that's exactly before right. you're going to let him. That's in, exactly yeah. right. And and to say to the brother, listen, you know, the other thing is it, it, that's a selfish action because you actually need to think that if you want the elder because you love the congregation. If you hide this thing, become an elder, then it comes out and blows up in the congregation. Mm-hmm. You're actually going to be hurting the people. Yeah. Um, so it's a selfish instinct. I mean, it's Adam in the garden hiding, right? Mm-hmm. It's a selfish instinct that just furthers the, the festering of sin in his own soul, if it's a sin issue, and, and could then leak into the congregation itself. So to me, do elders need to be old? <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Um, they they shouldn't be novices. They shouldn't be recent converts. Um, but we don't have anything like an age requirement um, for elders in the New Testament Scripture. Take uh, contrasting to First Timothy five, where Paul says, "Don't put it on, on the list of widows unless she's sixty or over." Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't we don't have that, and so we want to be prudential. And we know Timothy was young. Yeah. 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 So if I'm in a congregation where fifty percent are Caucasian and twenty percent African American and thirty percent are Korean. Should I expect a third of the elders to be Korean? Well, I think it's a good desire. I think you should pray toward that end. I, I think you want to maintain a sensibility um, for diversity in the eldership and look for godliness, not just among folks who are like you, but look for godliness wherever exists in the congregation. But the thing that you most want uh, isn't diversity as such, but you want godliness because yeah. if you have godly elders, uh, number one, they're going to be inclined uh, to love folks not like them. Yeah. Uh, and number two, they're going to be selfless in such a way as to invest in people uh, also not like them. Um, so sometimes you, if you rush toward a kind of quota, uh, bad idea. If you rush toward godliness, I think ultimately you'll begin to get the result that you're praying mm-hmm. for, even if in the near term you don't. And could it be that some guys could legitimately be elders in one church when they wouldn't be in another yeah, I think so. I think so. So um, these standards so, aren't absolute. I mean, no, not not in the sense that there's a there's a fixed measure uh-huh. um, in that way. Um, so again, I, I think 
So I what's think, a recent convert in one church might not be in another church. That's exactly right. So I think I think Titus's situation in Crete is different than Timothy's situation in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus is probably a more mature st- church, established church, and so on. Um, and so the 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 way in which you would apply or flesh out the qualifications in in, in Ephesus versus Crete might vary depending upon the, the kind of situation that you're in in terms of leaders and so on. Matt, did you want to say anything? Um, I'm struck with the idea of could you have a, a godly guy in your church and yet not appoint him as an elder because he's not like-minded or of one spirit with the other brothers? So you see 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Philippians 2, you know, Paul, be like-minded, have the same love, being one in the spirit and purpose. You could have a really godly guy that just, he has a different philosophy of ministry or a different take on such and such, and he couldn't be on your elder board because it'd be potentially divisive. Yeah, I think so. Um, you, among the other texts, Ephesians 4, um, do everything to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Um, so, so your elders, like your deacons, ought to be working for the unity of the church um, and unity of the church, not just doctrinally, but, but practically uh, as well. Um, the elders ought to be peacemakers and reconcilers. Um, so contrarians and, so, and nonconformists, these are thorns in the flesh for elder board? I, I think so. I, so. So one of the things an elder board has to work out are the reasonable bounds of, of tolerance for um, difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when, when Corinthians exhorts be like-minded, I don't think he's saying everybody has to think the exact same way on every issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think there are some bounds uh, across which um, you know, that difference becomes disruptive. Um, and if you have an elder who is different and also an advocate such that that difference is brought to the table every time that you meet, uh, you, you're going to find yourself not on task in terms of shepherding, uh, but um, maybe maybe always sort of trying to care for this disgruntled, this disgruntled elder. I, I love the example of um, Jim. Jim Smith, uh, who is a Sabbatarian uh, by conviction, um, but served here at Capitol Hill on the eldership, never made that an issue. Mm-hmm. Um cared about it and diminish his sense of the importance of it, uh, but didn't make it a divisive issue for the eldership or the church. And that's the, that's part of the kind of godliness that you're looking for. Someone who will esteem others uh, more highly than himself. Um, and particularly when they're the minority, you know, position in that. I think it's one of the hardest things I do as an elder. It, number one is just bearing the burdens of sin and discouragement amongst your flock mm. but then number two when you find yourself at odds mm-hmm. and in the minority mm-hmm. with your brother elders who mm-hmm. you're called to submit to mm-hmm. and be then they are your shepherds mm-hmm. and yet you have this deep conviction that I, I can't vote yes i want to but i can't i mm-hmm. need to submit here and you go home and you don't sleep very well that night well that's why after i had that first set of elder <clears throat> nominations here and they didn't work I didn't feel after I prayed about it that it I didn't could work find... because they weren't affirmed by the church. That's right. Thank yeah. you. I didn't feel that I could finally back down on that because it was just a matter of this is what I this is who I think your elders are in, in terms of biblical qualifications. So I wasn't trying to coerce the congregation. I was just letting them honestly what I thought. And if we didn't have sufficient amount of vision, then we just couldn't work together. Mm-hmm. It's not that I was lost or they were lost. It's just we just couldn't work together mm-hmm. in that way. And, and sometimes you reach that. I mean, and, yeah. and it's good to be honest about that and, and be clear kind about that. and be charitable. Kind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because the other thing is, not only does the person have to be humble enough to say, okay, I'm the minority, I'm not going to make this divisive, 
They also have to be humble enough and, and for the team enough that they will actually represent the position as their own position in the congregation. Uh, so you, there are two halves to that. One, I'm not going to divide the eldership over it. Mm-hmm. But two, I'm going to turn out to the congregation and represent this as mine. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you actually want both of those no. things in an eldership. And I think particularly when you have disagreement, then the charity just has to go way up. Way up. And particularly in terms of motives, mm-hmm. you should never suspect somebody else's motive. Mm-hmm. You should trust their motive is good. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I understand all motives are not good. The Lord can judge that. That's not my business. Mm-hmm. That's God's business. Mm-hmm. You should assume their motives are good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like if Lig and I, Lig Duncan and I are in an argument on baptism, I should assume Lig wants to know the Lord, believe his word, obey him with everything he has. And when we, where we get into problems, both in local elderships and beyond, I think, is when people start falling to immediately attacking someone's motives, mm-hmm. when actually they just you know, in good faith, disagree with them. I mean, you know, I think that kind of corruption we see in American politics, you know, is is the kind of thing that sometimes gets drug into local churches Mm -hmm. when it's just terrible. I mean, I would love to see Obama and Romney or Obama and Gingrich, you know, saying clearly, I know the other one wants a great America. I'm not going to caricature at all. Mm. You know, here are all things I agree with this other man about. Mm. These are some ways I would disagree, think that we'd better achieve this goal. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's the kind of, of, of large leadership you need on an eldership. Well, and part of, in order to getting that kind of leadership in the eldership, I mean, part of what you have, though, you have to have sufficient agreement and, and unity uh, in, in the basics. In, 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 you have to believe that you're sitting at the table with someone who holds precious, the same truths you hold precious, and someone who's aiming in the same direction, with your illustration, Great America or Great Church or whatever, aiming in the same direction. Because when you have that kind of unity and that kind of commonality, it actually gives you this freedom to argue vigorously about things you don't agree on and to leave the table loving and affirming one another. Um, And so that's part of, I think, the problem that can be created if an eldership moves toward pragmatic considerations and and sort of downplay uh, theological agreements and commitments. Um, you move to that, and then when you discover you have a disagreement, but you didn't have all the other basic stuff in common, then I think that the, the eldership is tempted to much more su- suspicion, you know, lack of charity, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. All that underscores the importance of what you're saying about not being hasty, right. what, what Paul tells us, and not being hasty and laying on hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, also about, you know, having them have opportunities to teach mm. and asking them, being careful to ask them specifically about what they believe Scripture teaches on matters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that we know their theology more than we know just, say, the average church member who joins That's the right. church. That's right. We find restroom breaks useful in elder meetings because a lot of apologies happen, too, during that time. <laughs> you can go back to the table, <laughs> restored fellowship, and pick up the next topic. <laughs> we really do. So true. Just to be clear, so we're talking about a plurality of elders in each local church, not just one elder. We are. That seems to be the pattern in the New Testament. Yep. And the the senior pastor, so the, the you and the me in our, in our congregations, mm-hmm. we're an elder too. Yes. We're a super elder or we're just an elder? Well, I'm just an elder. You, you're a super <laughs> elder, Mark. I, I'm just an elder. Um, you, you sort that's of, not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, actually, I, that's not helpful because the truth is, Mark, I, I've watched you for years in the eldership be very deferential, last one to speak or share your opinion, 
others chair the eldership. You support um, their their leadership and their chairing uh, in a wonderful way that distributes um, the authority and the responsibility of the eldership across the other men. And I think as a senior pastor, that's precisely what you, you want to do. Um, you don't want senior to get in the way of your pastoring the other elders uh, and investing in the other elders in such a way that their, their status in the eyes of the congregation is lifted yeah. uh, and the congregation is taught to trust them uh, and to respond to them and respond to their leadership. So, you know, you hear the phrase kind of first among equals. I, I think functionally that's going to happen. The one who preaches the word the most is going to accrue. It's naturally accrue that authority. going to accrue some authority. The question is what you do with it. And I think you need to redistribute it among the elders. So the image I like to use is, and as I'll say to folks, I, I'm not bothered by the language first among equals. I, I will say, but the way I think about that is not that I'm, you know, this snow-capped mountain way off in the distance that when you look at it, you think I could never climb it. I'm more like a speed bump in the parking lot. You, <laughs> you know, have you to can, go over it. You can ride over it, but you don't want to hit it doing 60 miles an hour. You know, you, you want to ride over it gently so that the suspension, you know, is left intact. And so the elders can overrule me, vote against me, so on and so forth. But if they're wise, they'll do that gently. And they'll drive over it slowly. Uh, they want to know why I've got the position that I've got. And and I need to nudge out a bit to lead the eldership, mm-hmm. but I don't need to be so far off out in the distance that they think we can never we can never scale that guy and change mm-hmm. that guy. Uh, That's great. Way. But on our elder board, you would say there's a number of first among equals in depending on the topic we're talking about. That's true. That's right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, there there are going to be some topics where everybody knows. I don't really have anything got useful to say. Exactly. From other brothers around the table, Everybody. or in pastoral issues. You know, when when these two brothers have been the one who've been working with this couple, I you know differ. Yeah. No. yeah. And even you know even on biblical theological matters. I mean, you know, Brad and Jamie and others have been doing, and Andy Johnson been doing the lion's share of the work on divorce issues. Mm. You know, where it's not like I've never thought about it, but it's like you know we're all working on our own kind of things. No, just say that's also part of the blessing of a larger eldership should the Lord give it to you. Yes, it is. Lots of gifts. Yeah. Lots of gifts and lots of men willing to give their time. Back to the senior pastor and how the senior pastor treats the other elders, because I think this interview is going to be listened to a lot by senior pastors. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as percentage of people who listen, I assume, uh, you know, senior pastors are the one who are especially thinking about the local church, especially trying to work on things. Mm -hmm. I think we have to be very careful to, as senior pastors, to not... um, use our authority over against the other elders mm. because every time we do that, it's like telling these other guys, you're really wasting your time. You're a rubber stamp for me mm-hmm. and you can do it and you can probably still have elders. You'll just get different guys. That's right. You get That's guys right. who are really just there to agree with whatever you say. That's right. And yeah, then you'll lose all the gifts the Lord has put in the local church of these other wonderful brothers who have their experience with the Lord, their understanding of the Word, their yeah. understanding of Godliness from their own families. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's what's going to give the eldership much more strength and texture. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can find ways to try to listen to others carefully and build up their authority appropriately in the congregation. So that's why, so I agree exactly the way you put it to be. You're to use the authority that naturally accrues to you as the main teaching elder of God's word to try to help the congregation respect these other brothers who should be respected. Amen. Yeah, last thing you want to do is be in a car going over a cliff with other elders, and as you're going over the cliff, they say, well, I, I saw it, but I didn't think you'd listen to me. You know, the last thing you want, I mean, you want to be in the car with guys who would actually grab the wheel yeah. if they need to, hit the brakes for you, you know, yell in your ear in yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Um, anything on a good chairman of the elders? 
You yeah. guys, all three of us actually have been chairman of the elders here at this church at various times. It's a hard job. It's it's hurting cats. <laughs> it, it's hurting cats. Uh, I should, think, should the pastor be the chairman of the elders? I, I'm going to say just from experience, in most cases, probably not. Right. Because part of what it does in not being the chairman is it, you know, it's just another way to distribute the authority and the responsibility and, and among the elders. Um, it, it sort of takes you out of leading mode all the time mm-hmm. and lets you listen, uh, which which I find I need to do more of. Uh, just sort of listen and be a, a participant in the con- con- conversation. Um, that's that's very helpful. Uh, particularly on the issues where, as an eldership, you're trying to work your way through and you're trying to figure it out. And so if you're not the one sort of calling on folks and, and moderating the conversation, um, I think others are helped to participate and you're helped to listen in that way. I think you need a chair who, who listens well, uh, a chair who can summarize discussion well, a chair who can moderate the other brothers um, in terms of, you know, recognizing someone to speak or, you know, kind of sitting on somebody who's speaking too much. Um, just all those mechanics uh, in terms of the meeting, but I think you need a I think you need a chair who is um, inclined toward unity, uh, and and who builds unity and builds team uh, among the elders. Who doesn't mind making the extra phone call to say, I, I noticed how you left the other day. I, I'm not sure you were feeling okay about that conversation. Talk talk to me about that, mm-hmm. uh, or to encourage others. Speak up, brother. I know you've got good thoughts on this. Um, so those would be some of the things I think you would want. I think you want a man who's who's prayerful. You know, who, who, who prays for uh, the church, prays for the elders, uh, sees himself, is willing to pastor the other pastors mm. uh, as the chair of the elders in that way. Matt, anything to Yeah, I, I think it's, if you're just getting elders, I think it may be good for the pastor to be the chairman initially, maybe that first year. A set a pattern. You set a pattern and you say, you, you, you we, we fall into habits and traditions very quickly. Mm. And because, Mark, you were the, our first chairman, we made prayer, reading of God's word, singing together, um, kind of member centric as we review various, you know, member. we made all because the gravity is always toward administrative matters, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you've got to beat that back. And yeah. you set that pattern. Then other guys picked it up and can take over the administration, pulling all the memos together and setting that agenda. But setting setting that those traditions, I think, was very important that you did for us. Mm-hmm. On the qualification in First Timothy three two, able to teach, does that mean able to preach? Are you only looking for guys who can preach? No, uh, I don't think that means he, he's, a, he's a pulpiteer. Um, but I will I will say I think he needs to be able to teach in some kind of public forum, uh, maybe a small group leadership, uh, maybe Sunday school uh, or so on. But I, I think that teaching gift needs to be needs to be used publicly in the life of the church. Certainly one on one discipleship as well. Um, but he doesn't have to be a preacher. Needs to be a kind of man that other people in the congregation, when they're wondering what God's word says on something, they would turn to Jonathan or turn to Jamie or turn, they would just turn to, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> probably the most sweeping qualification for elders, and I know we're doing this right near the end of the interview, but it's just, it's so stunning when you meditate on these qualifications. Is right there in First Timothy 3, mm. uh, number, uh, verse 2, now, the overseer must be above reproach. Mm. Brother, which one of us is above reproach? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the authorized version there even has blameless. Yeah. I and mean, doesn't this cut us all out? 
No, I, I think I think that's kind of an omnibus qualification. I think the others kind of I think Paul is elaborating in part what it means to be above reproach uh, or or to be blameless. So he's the husband of but one wife. He's temperate. He's self-controlled. Um, not perfectly so. So we're not no. talking about a kind of perfectionism, but generally so. Um, he's the kind of guy who's not impeachable. Uh, he's the kind of guy if if someone in the congregation heard that two people were having a squabble. And, and this guy was blamed. The people in the congregation would go, uh, I highly doubt that. I'm, I, you know, he would have the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. as someone who has integrity mm-hmm. as someone who's respectable uh, and consistently godly uh, as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah, they, they just simply, these qualifications, they, they characterize his life. That's right. <laughs> There's anomalies on occasion. Mm-hmm that they characterize his life. Mm-hmm. If I've got time to just get in one more question, I, I know the book says Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons. I assume to be the, you pretty much got in mind pastors and church leaders, elders reading this book. Uh, pastors, church leaders, elders, but also search committees okay. uh, in congregations. And congregations on the whole, you know, I, I think um, one of the things a sister said to me this week, she said, I've been reading your book, I love your book. Uh, it's, it's helped me know how to pray for my elders. That's um, and so oh. it, 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 I think the lay person should take it up and read it. Mm-hmm. I, I think men in a church should read it. If you go back to that idea that every man ought to aspire to be yeah. qualified as yeah. an elder, then it's a primer it, on it, masculinity. It's clearly masculinity. a good book for elders to read together. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of slowly take a chapter of time as a little devotional, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, or time of prayer and confession and intercession. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that the congregation, how is a congregation to discern that a man's character is sufficiently spiritually mature and above reproach? I mean, how, how can a congregation do that? Uh, together, uh, in prayer, um, spend some time getting to know the guy, invite, invite him out to lunch or dinner, um, engage your elders about what they have discovered as a, as a smaller committee of the whole, really doing the investigative work. Um, so part of this is going to be trusting your elders as they make the nomination. Yeah. Part of this is also going to be um, getting to know the person, if, he, if if as a congregation member you're not you're not particularly aware. So in a larger congregation, the congregation every every member of the congregation won't know every man nominated as an elder. So in that sense, you're doing what you say, trusting the elders. But I guess everyone who does know that man should think he should be an elder, or should, and if he right. doesn't, they should share that reason why. Maybe with the man directly, or certainly with the elders. With the elders, and you give the elders before you come to a time of voting. Uh, and you give the elders opportunity to hear that concern, explore it, perhaps resolve it before you get there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And does this in any way, what you're saying congregations need to do now, does this in any way contradict Jesus when in Matthew 7 he says, don't judge? No. Because aren't you kind of telling people to judge? No, it, we're actually telling telling <clears throat> people to affirm the presence of God's grace and godliness uh, in a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we hope that our processes aren't like popular votes. They're not like elections held at, in governments. We, we, hope that, we hope that there's a, a discerning together of, of the work of the Lord and the Spirit in a man's life and an affirmation of that, mm-hmm. um, not an unrighteous judgment um, mm-hmm. based upon our own flesh or, or what have you. Well, the Beatty and Matt, I think you guys are above reproach. I think you meet that biblical qualification. I'm so thankful you do. I mean By that God's not grace. as By I was going to say. I mean that not as tribute to you, ultimately, obviously, but to God's work. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful for the ministry He's given you to lead congregations. And Tabidi, thank you for putting the effort into this book. Well, thank you for you know your your influence in this book. That the fingerprints of uh, at least three churches are all over this book. Uh, Capitol Hill being one of them. Um, 
First Baptist and, and Church on the Rock. And so it's been an honor to just try and distill some of what I've gleaned from those places to hopefully be a, a help to the Lord's Church. You did a great job, brother. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches.